church. And as little ones are heading back to go to Children's Church, I'd invite the rest of us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. Glad you're here this morning. We have figured out who the non-idolaters of football are. We are taking attendance. <laughs> Would you stand with me if you're willing and able as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. We've got a fun text for us this morning. I'm reading from the ESV translation, one of many very good translations we have in our English Bibles. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may be seated. Father, we come before you again. We ask for your help. We first want to pray for the kids in Children's Church that in their lesson they would learn of you this morning, that you would continue to um, plant seeds of the gospel in their hearts and minds and knowledge of you. And we pray now as we work through understanding this passage and what it calls us to do, that we would all be submitted to you as our God. We would walk humbly before you. Guide my words. Guide our thinking and our hearing. And may your will be done among us. By your spirit, to the praise of your son. Amen. Uh, Baptist pastor Alistair Begg was once at a conference, and he was at this conference, and all the other speakers at this conference were Presbyterian, and they were having a discussion, a little bit of a debate as to whether uh, infants should be baptized or not, or whether we hold to believers' baptism. Again, he was the only Baptist, all the rest were Presbyterians who baptized infants, and as Alistair Begg got up to speak, the, the lone Baptist of the crowd, he said, I feel like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. 
Sometimes we feel like that, that what we're about to say or how we have to speak, we're going to have to tiptoe around things lest we get our tail stepped on or step on somebody else's tail. And that's sometimes how we feel when we come to passages of Scripture, especially ones that call for wives to submit to their husbands, as we have before us this morning. And by the way, this is why we preach through entire books of the Bible, because we might be tempted to otherwise skip such difficult and hard passages, but we go through and we talk about what Scripture talks about. So my goal this morning is not really to tiptoe. My goal is just to say what God says for all of us. And I come to the text this morning, I think, with the same conviction that you come with, with the same foundational uh, belief that men and women are different. That we have equality before God, but there is a fundamental distinction between men and women. What is that distinction? I think it goes beyond, and it's not something surface level like boys like cars and women and girls like dolls. That's not what we're talking about. It doesn't always hold true. What is the distinction among us? Well, it's certainly biological. The men and women are at the fundamental cellular DNA level different from each other. But that's not what we're talking about. And I think our difference goes even beyond biological, that we have a, a certain spiritual distinction between us, not in our intelligence, not in our spirituality, not in our uh, emotions, but the distinction between men and women goes back to creation and who we are before God and what he has ordained us to do. The distinction between men and women has to do with our relationship before him and the roles God has given us to play. The distinction goes back to our very creation, the fact that at creation, God gave men and women distinct roles before him, and those roles are especially expressed in the union of a man and a woman in marriage. We each have a part to play that is distinct from the other. Men and women... Husbands and wives serve each other in marriage, but the question is how? What does that look like? As what Peter answers for us this morning in verses 1 through 7, how do, Christian, how do Christ followers serve their spouses? It's the big question on the table. How do Christ followers serve their spouses? Before we get into it, I want you to notice the first word in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 3 is likewise. It's important. It means that Peter's following a train of thought. Likewise. In the same way. In the same way as what? Well, Peter has been speaking to those who are not in authority about how they are supposed to live under those who have authority. He's been talking to civilians underneath the government, slaves under their masters, and now he's going to speak to wives under their husbands. And what has Peter just talked about in context? Jesus Christ on the cross, who gave himself up in holy submission as a suffering servant for the salvation of his people. It is with that in mind... And in that context that Peter now speaks, likewise, like all these others and like Christ, now he speaks to women first and then to the men. 
How do Christ's followers serve their spouses? First, in verses 1 through 6, Peter will speak about the calling of Christian wives. Then in verse 7, the calling of Christian husbands. So wives, you are first. Notice here, this is important. Peter specifically addresses wives. He is talking to them. So husbands, you have my permission to sleep. For, for the first half of this, you can watch the Chiefs game on your phone. Go ahead. You can tune out. I'll call you back in later on, and we'll talk to you. But right now, we're just talking to the wives in the room. That's important because, I'll say it again, this is talking to wives, meaning this is not a word for husbands on how to get their wives to submit to them. Who's Peter talking to? Wives. So if husbands, you're reading this thing, how do I do this? You don't. And if that's your intent, repent. This is talking to wives. It's the calling of Christian wives. And Peter will tell them what they are to do, how they are to do it, and why they are to do it. So that's how we'll break it up. What, how, and why. What is the calling of Christian wives? How are they to do it? Why? I'm going to read the first six verses again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So what is the call for wives? Be subject to your own husbands. What does that not mean? It does not mean women submit to men everywhere. This is not a general call for women submitting to men. It's a specific context. Wives to your own husbands. This also does not mean that wives are to blindly follow their husbands and do whatever they say no matter what. How do we know that? I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but just think about the context that Peter's writing in and what he calls wives to do. Peter's not saying, you don't have any agency, you're just supposed to be a doormat. He is telling wives, you might be living with husbands who you know are wrong, who you know do not have the truth who you know are not believers and are not Christians. So how are you, as a wife, who has agency and choice and knows her husband is wrong and wants to change her husband, how do you do that? That is not a doormat. That is someone, by the grace of God, knows they are in the right, knows they follow the right Lord, wants to figure out, how am I going to interact 
with my husband who is currently lost. So it's not somebody who blindly follows no matter what. In fact, this was countercultural in the first century Greco-Roman context. It was expected and anticipated that wives would take on the religion of their husbands. We actually have a documentation uh, writing about certain strange religious sects and cults that um, particular wives got into. So there was an expectation, no, we're not going to let women get into strange religions and spirituality. Wives ought to follow along, and there's an expectation that women would follow along with their husbands and whatever religion they took on, whatever gods the husband took on, then the wives were expected to do the same. Peter's speaking very counterculturally and saying, don't do that. Here's how you rebel in a godly way. So what is he calling wives to do? To be subject. What does that mean? It means to live in such a way that respects the leadership responsibility of the husband and lives in obedience under his authority. Whenever that word is used, be subject, or maybe translated submit, it is always used in the context of one who doesn't have authority submitting to one who does. Jesus, Luke tells us, was subject to his parents. Luke 10 tells us that demons were subject to disciples. Romans 13 says citizens are to be subject to the government. First Peter will say in a little bit later, spiritual powers are to be subject to Christ. First Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ is subject to the Father. First Corinthians 16 tells us church members are to be subject to leaders. Ephesians 5 says the church is to be subject to Christ. We've already seen that servants are to be subject to masters, and Hebrews 12 tells us Christians are to be subject to God. In every one of those examples, there is one who is under authority who is to submit to the authority of the other. The relationship is never reversed. Nowhere in Scripture are parents told to be subject to their kids. Nowhere in Scripture is Jesus called to be subject to the church. And while Ephesians 5 talks about mutual submission, husbands are never told directly to be subject to their wives. That relationship is never reversed the other way. It doesn't mean all relationships of submission and authority look exactly the same. Kids are subject to their parents in a way that adults aren't subject to one another. Each relationship has its own context. And I would add this. Each cultural context is different, so how this looks is going to be different from culture to culture. There's a, a fundamental principle that's the same, but it will look different in different cultures. So, for example, I, I believe in this first century Greco-Roman time, it would have been considered scandalous by many for a woman to go out alone without her husband or a male relative uh, as her escort. And for her to, to go about the town without... A male as her husband, a relative as an escort, would have been seen scandalous and acting without submission. We don't see that. That's not how we operate in our cultures. That doesn't mean anything, but for them it did. So what it means to be subject or to act submissively is going to change a little bit from culture to culture, and you have to apply it from culture to culture. So that's why Peter gets into how. Here's the what, be subject, how are you going to do it? And he says with a gentle and quiet spirit, letting your adorning be not just the external, but the internal. 
Peter mentions some cultural things like braiding of your hair or in gold jewelry or in the clothes you wear. Now, is Peter saying here that a Christian wife may not braid her hair or may never wear jewelry? And if so, if that's what he's saying, you may excuse yourself and go to the bathroom to remove some things and come back. Peter here isn't banning all these things. How do we know that? Because what's the third example? In the clothing you wear. It's literally adorning yourself in wearing clothes. I'm pretty sure Peter's not banning that. Catch what I'm saying? So we don't look at this woodenly saying, no, he's banning all these things. No, that's not what he's doing. He's making a point. That in these things, don't let these things be the focus. How you adorn yourself. And at that time, women of wealth and beauty often wore ornate braided hair on top of their heads, expensive jewelry. It was a sign of uh, someone who had wealth and was focused on their physical appearance. And Peter says, that's not where to focus on. It doesn't mean we can't be attractive or present ourselves attractively. And for those of you who are able to do that, God bless you. I've heard it's nice. <laughs> Peter's saying beauty should not be the focus. Our world has gotten this wrong. We make everything about the physical. Just watch the commercials. How many beauty products are sold to you? Our culture has a tendency to reduce women to objects who exist as physical specimens alone. And I think Peter knows and here stands with some compassion that appearance and how we appear to others is, is a particular challenge for women where there's lots of pressure to present yourself beautifully. And Peter gives a pastoral reminder. Here's where your focus ought to be. In a quiet and gentle spirit in things that are incorruptible, imperishable. Not the external stuff. Gold will perish. The body will droop and sag. Gravity is going to be gravity. But godliness lasts forever. It is incorruptible. It's a thing that is precious in God's sight. Peter describes this internal beauty as a gentle and quiet spirit. And some of you might say, I'm not a gentle and quiet woman. God bless you. Now, this isn't just about volume. It's about the character of your heart. And gentleness and quietness isn't just for females. This is an actual uh, qualification for eldership, for leadership in the church. Jesus himself is described as gentle and quiet. What Peter's concerned with is a spirit. Are, are you familiar with the principle of like attracts like? I'm sure somebody who knows science, and there's probably some scientific thing here, but I'm just talking about sociologically, generally, people like attracts like. People who are like each other attract 
others who are the same. And what Peter is saying is, if you want to attract your husband to godliness, how are you going to do it? If you want your husband to be a godly husband, to see the beauty and the wisdom of Jesus Christ in the gospel, you're not going to do it through external beauty. It's going to be done through a quiet, gentle, attractive inner person. That is how you will attract godliness, by being godly yourself. Because like attracts like. So here, Peter's getting into the why. Why should the wife be subject to her husband? So that she might win her husband. That she might win him by a godly example. As Peter says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is the reason for humble, quiet submission. That this might be what wins the husband to a life of following Jesus. Peter's saying this is the best evangelistic approach. He's not saying you have to be silent at all times. The silent treatment isn't what he's talking about. He's not saying you never speak the gospel. What he is saying is arguing, belittling, demeaning, constantly talking will not win him over. I'm going to venture a sports analogy. Those of you who have played sports or watched sports for a long time, how effective is constantly arguing with the refs? I've never seen it work. I've been watching hockey a long time. I've never seen the officials call back a penalty because, you know, they argued and they were right. What I do see is you keep arguing and it's not going to go well for you. Sometimes constant arguing is not the way to win people over. Peter's saying the most effective evangelistic approach, the way to win your husband over, is through your godly character. You may face the temptation to argue, to talk over, because you know better. You are going to have to resist that temptation and demonstrate godly character. Some have looked at this passage and said, well, this call to submission, this quiet, gentle spirit, this quiet submission that Peter's calling for, is only relevant in this context, in this time. But that's all that Peter's doing. He's saying, wives in first century Roman Empire, and those of you who have unbelieving husbands, this is just a call to submit, and for only this reason, only this time, this is just a command that only applies in this context. In the first century at that time, and taken out of context, it doesn't really have the same meaning. I mean, after all, in today's context, can we actually call wives to submit? In our context, in our day, in our modern day? I mean, obviously, we have marriage and gender figured out. In the wisdom of our culture, we've really nailed marriage. Inside and outside outside church, we've got it all figured out. And we know what it means to be a man and a woman in our day. So clearly, that idiot Peter in the first century, these archaic scriptures no longer apply to the wisdom of our modern day. We've got it all figured out. Okay, you know I'm being facetious, but I'm making a point. This isn't just a command for then. So don't wash it away or brush it away as well. It only applies in that time. This is a command 
a call for all time. How do I know? Was Peter say? Why should wives be subject? Not only to win husbands, to win their husbands to Christ, but also because it's what godly women have always done going back to Sarah. In other times, in other contexts, this is the pattern of godly women. Those who are in line with God will have this demeanor of Sarah, who called Abraham Lord. It's a reference to Genesis 18.12, where Sarah calls Abraham Lord, kind of offhandedly almost, in the context of promising a son, and Sarah laughs, so that's crazy. And she calls Abraham Lord. Again, almost offhanded, but it shows that this is a pattern for her. This was her general disposition. This is just the way she lived. She lived with Abraham as her husband, as her Lord. Again, this does not mean she was always silent or passive. Sometimes she spoke. You could do a study on Sarah, in the Old Testament. I don't think you'd find her as a mousy person. In fact, there's one instance in Genesis 21. Sarah actually told Abraham, cast out Hagar and Ishmael. If you know the story, you know why. Ishmael, Hagar's son, was laughing, mocking Isaac. There's some of the promise. And Sarah says, do something about this, Abraham. How does God respond to that? God actually visits Abraham and does, Abraham, does God say to Abraham, Abraham, you're the man, you never listen to your wife. What does God say? Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God tells Abraham, hey man, listen to your wife. So Sarah was not totally silent. She had a say in their marriage. And at times, Abraham was to listen. But even in all that, she recognized it was ultimately Abraham's decision what to do with Ishmael. She recognized it was his role, his responsibility before God to lead. So she spoke, and then she followed. And if you know the story of Sarah and Abraham, it wasn't always easy to follow Abraham. It wasn't always an easy life. There were times where there was danger, which is why I think Peter says here, women, if you follow along the line of Sarah and do good and don't fear what is frightening because he recognizes it'll be a scary thing to follow. It will not always be easy to submit. There are times where you will feel threatened being subject. But this is the call. Do not be afraid. If you do this, you will be in the line of Sarah's daughters. Way of saying the offspring of Abraham, God's people. So a quick word of application for the women. First, I want to talk to the single women. Those of you who are not married but may be. The call for you will be, if you are married, 
to be subject to your husbands. So, choose well. Choose well. What kind of man are you going to unite yourself to? Who are you going to hitch your wagon to? You can save yourself a lot of heartache by choosing well. Marry the kind of man who is easy to follow, a man of integrity, a man of humility, one who treats others well, who is kind to those around him, who is not always disrespectful to authorities. How does he treat the authorities in his life? How does he treat those who are under him in his life? How does he treat his parents, his family members? When you go out to eat, how does he treat the wait staff? How does he treat other women? Above all, marry a man who has submitted himself to the Lord Jesus and walks after him. You will save yourself much heartache by choosing well. To the women who are married, I would simply ask, what will it mean for you to be in submission to your husband? How might you do that this week? What does that look like? Ask God. And these are the kind of prayers he answers. God, you have said what your will is. How do I follow it? You might say, well, I don't want to do that. I'm not one who submits. Then I would say you can just take that up with Jesus at the cross. To the one who suffered and died and bled for you, and you can tell him it's beneath you. You have, wives, a wonderful opportunity to be hugely influential. You have no idea how influential you can be upon your husband. And despite all appearances, and we'll talk about this, it might seem like they don't hear a thing you say or notice a thing you do. They're watching. How do Christ's followers serve their spouses? The challenge and the calling for wives is to be subject and live a godly life adorned not by external but internal beauty. You might win your husband and be in line with God's people. It's the calling of the Christian wife. All right, now husbands. Wives, you can watch the game now. If it's still going, I don't even know. Husbands, wake up. It's your turn. Because here... You'll notice Peter addresses husbands specifically. So wives, this is not your opportunity to look at verse 7 and say, how do I get him to do this? Husbands, this is your call. This is the calling of the Christian husband. And we'll do the same thing. We'll ask what it is, how it's to be done, and why. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Notice here that Peter also says, likewise, addressing husbands. Meaning, this is in the same spirit. In the same spirit of citizens to their government, slaves to masters, in the same spirit of Christ on the cross, with that same humility and that same uh, spirit, you husbands are also to serve the other in your marriage. So what specifically is the husband's calling? The command here in verse 7 is particularly to live with your wife. 
Now, at this point, ladies might be a little upset. I was called to submit to be subject, and the call for husband was just live with her. This seems incongruous. In fact, there are six verses over here, one verse for the husband. Well, so this doesn't seem right. Well, let's unpack it, and we'll see what and why this is. I think, by the way, the wives get more verses in this because it's in the theme of Peter, of those who have no authority, submitting to those who do have it. So I think he's specifically more addressing them. And I think it's because they have, in some ways, the harder calling. So Peter unpacks it more. But now he's going to go directly to husbands and say, Husbands, live with your wives. That's the what? That's the command. What's the significance of this? Well, if you really think about this, this is actually incredibly impactful. Husbands, live with your wives, which does not mean, what does this exclude? What is living with excluding? It does not mean lord over your wives. It does not mean neglect your wives. Forget about your wives. Don't pay attention to your wives. See your wives as less than you. No, the call is live with. You have been given God's greatest gift in your wife. Aside from salvation itself, you've been given a bride. So live with her alongside. Husbands, your selfish tendency will be to neglect, ignore, dismiss, or distance yourself. You may be tempted to work hard and you might have ambitions and you're going to focus on those things and you will face the temptation to neglect the relationship that God has given you. So here's your reminder from Peter. Live with, bring her along, alongside you, sharing your life with her, walking together. Husbands are to live with their wives. How are they to do this? Peter says, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. With understanding first, he says, with consideration. Now the question is, understanding of what? Because Peter literally says, live with your wives with understanding. It doesn't say what you're supposed to understand. It just says with understanding. And interpreters go back and forth. Some say this is in reference to understanding of God. Just like Peter called slaves to be mindful of God. This is calling husbands to live with understanding of God. And others say, well, in context, clearly it's talking about live with understanding of your wife. And I, being the indecisive man that I am, I'm going to say it's both. You husbands are to live with your wives with understanding of God and her and your place there. So husbands, you are to live with an understanding of God. You are to know him. You are to know the ways of God. You have been given a role of authority and responsibility in your marriage and in your home. Where are you going to go to leadership and for accountability? How are you going to lead? Who will hold you responsible in the end? You better understand who God is and who God is with you and for you. Know the ways of God. Too many, uh, and I don't think this is a problem in our church, actually, and I'm really thankful for that, but too many, just in general evangelical culture, uh, see men as, well, they kind of really lean on their wives for their spiritual life. You know, the women, the wives, they're the spiritual ones, they're the ones of the Bible studies, they're the ones who have friendships in the church, they're the ones who, who do everything, and the men just kind of ride on their coattails. And it's almost a joke, it's almost expected in evangelical culture that the wives are the spiritual ones, and then there's the, the adults who are the husbands. I don't think that's the case in our church. I'm glad because Peter is saying, you better know, be considerate, be understanding. It's a call to understand who God is. If there is spiritual lethargy in the home, it is the husband's responsibility to correct the error. Husbands must be constantly repenting of spiritual laziness, 
striving to understand God. So husbands, know your Bibles. Know what the Lord wills for your life. Know what the Lord wills for your marriage, for your parenting, for your home. It is not her job to raise the kids. In fact, when Paul writes about raising children in Ephesians 6, 4, he specifically addresses fathers to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is your responsibility, ultimately, to make sure your home is a godly home where the kids are raised in discipline and instruction of the Lord. You've got to understand God and husbands. Understand your wife. Be considerate, Peter says, of her. Husbands should be students of their wives, interested in their wives, wanting to know what their wives think, what they're feeling, what they're struggling with, what they're excited about, what are they learning, where are they growing, what are their gifts, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses. What do they need? I'll say something difficult, and it's difficult because I've had to learn this, and I'm still learning this. Maggie can attest that this isn't necessarily an area of strength of mine, but I'll say this to husbands. Your wife should not have to tell you everything. Sometimes, you can actually learn things on your own. And... So this is, I'm going to confession time. This is something I'm. Uh, but I would often just go around the house and say, "Is there anything I can do?" I still do this. Maggie hates this question because there will be obviously, apparently, to anybody who walks in the room, millions of things to be done. Right? There's all sorts of things to be done. I say, "Well, I don't know what I can do." And the response, Maggie, internally would be, "Open your eyes. Like, just just figure it out." So that's true, like physically with things do, but it's also true, like actually interactionally, uh, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, what's going on, huh? It, I don't know what's going on there. I'm not going to ask, and she'll tell me when she needs. No, actually, husbands, it's your job to be proactive, to ask, to be invested, to to actually get to know, and don't just assume. You know what? Sometimes she'll tell me if we need counseling. <laughs> By the time she's told you, it's too late. You husbands, be considerate, understand, learn, ask questions. There is a temptation to laziness, and I know it well. There's a temptation to come home from work, and just the way our house is ordered, Maggie's generally at home, and I work elsewhere, and I go home, and there's the temptation on my part to just shut off and check out when I go home because I'm tired, and I want nothing more often than to disengage. So there are times, literally, where I have to just park in my driveway, finish the game that I was playing on my phone, put that away, take me about 15 minutes, five minutes of prayer, and then, all right, I'm ready to go in. I'm speaking facetiously again. But, but there are times where I literally have to pray, how can I be engaged, active, take responsibility, and not just shut off? Because the temptation is there, and it's strong. Husbands, be considerate. That's how you're to live with your wife. 
Why? Actually, I'll back this up. The other how, we should live with our wives, showing honor. Showing honor is the weaker vessel. And I think that means exactly what it says. This is not saying the wife is lesser mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It literally means weaker. Generally speaking, men are stronger than women. And God has placed the husband in a role of authority and leadership and responsibility and placed the wife under that in a place of vulnerability, in a weaker position. So, husbands, show honor. Which means don't exploit, don't neglect, don't abuse or use, but lift up and honor. There is a differential there that men and women experience. I, I've never experienced what it's like to just be afraid for myself going out. I don't carry mace or pepper spray with me. Some women do. I'm not afraid for myself in a parking lot at Walmart at 10 o'clock. I don't live with a vulnerability uh, in the same way my wife might, or often women do. There's just a difference there. There's a distinction. Women are in a place of vulnerability. And if you don't honor that, husbands, you will abuse that. So husbands, with the strength the Lord has given you, honor your wife. Lift her up. How are you going to nourish and grow Your wife should have gifts that are evident because you have done the work of building her up so that she may use those gifts. Use your position to honor. Okay, now why? Why does a husband honor his wife? Peter gives two reasons. First, because they are co-heirs with you. Do you see the equality in that? Women are not in a lesser place spiritually. In fact, men, husbands, they're co-heirs with you. And this is a plain scriptural truth all throughout scripture. Men and women together made in the image of God in Genesis. Galatians 3.28 will tell us that men and women both have equal access to salvation. And before Christ, there are neither uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, which means that in Christ and before Christ, there is equal access to all the spiritual blessings of Christianity and the gospel. There is equality there. And in the future, in your inheritance, in the new creation, you you are co-heirs together. You both heirs of God. So because of that, show honor. And now here's the warning. Husbands, be considerate, show honor, and live with understanding so that your prayers will not be hindered. Which is a way of saying, husbands, if you don't consider your wives, God will not consider you. If you don't live with understanding seeking to know and understand your wife, God will not seek to understand your prayers. If you want to be blessed spiritually, then bless your wife. There's a direct relationship between how we treat our wives and how we'll be blessed by God. Wayne Grudem writes this. 
says, No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer. And no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. If you want heaven to bless you, honor your wife. That is the calling of the Christian husband to live with his wife in an understanding way of both God and her, giving her honor as the one in the position of weakness because we are equal in Christ and so that our prayers are not hindered. That is your calling, husbands. So husbands, point of application, how will you live with your wife this week? How will you grow in your understanding of her? How will you consider her, honor her? Ask God to help you in this. And I'm confident he'll answer. And I want to give a final point of application for both husbands and wives, and really for all of us in this room. Remember who your Lord is. You have one ultimate Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Which means, wives... Be subject to your husbands only so far as you do not disobey God himself. We talked about this a couple weeks ago or last week. Peter knows, the scripture knows, there are times where we obey God rather than men. So wives, you have the ability to say no to your husband. And at times the responsibility if that is what following God requires. And you're going to have to work that out. But know that you have one Lord above all. Husbands, you have one Lord, his name is Jesus Christ. So you live with understanding and consideration of your wife only so far as you do not betray your God. And I've seen this happen a bit where husbands fool themselves into thinking they're loving their wife by following her in disobedience to God. It is not loving your wife by being a coward and not obeying God, even if obedience to God requires you to confront and correct and stand. Do not repeat the sin of Adam or the sin of Solomon, or the sin of Ahab, or the sin of Abraham. And following what your wife says when God requires otherwise. That's the truth for all. We have to know when and we need to follow God more than our spouse. Who's your Lord? close with this thought. Who is your Lord? Our Lord is Jesus Christ. And how would you describe Jesus Christ as a spouse to his church? Jesus Christ is one who knows his Father and submits to him who is humble and sacrifices himself for the service of the other.
That is who we follow. And that, at the heart of all of this, is the fundamental way we serve our spouses through humility and service that honors Jesus Christ. How do Christ's followers serve their spouses? With the humility of Jesus Christ, in service through submission, and service through considerate living. We won't be perfect in it. We're going to fail a lot. But God's a gracious God. Would you pray with me? Father, give us the humility to follow Jesus Christ and whatever that requires of us in each of our roles and each of our places and the context that you have us living in. May we know that we have one Lord. He is our example, our empowerment, the man who gave himself up so that others may live. Help us do the same in our own marriages, to consider the other more important than ourselves, to uh, submit to our husbands, to serve our wives, to do all of this under the ultimate lordship of Jesus Christ, honoring him above all. Help us to do this, Lord, that we may win many to Jesus Christ, that we may stand in line with the people of God through all ages so our prayers won't be hindered, so your people will be honored, and for the gospel to prevail by your power in us. Thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, the empowering of the Spirit, for your word. Amen.